Welcome, listeners, to another edition of the Naffy Break podcast. I'm your host, Dominic O'Sullivan. As always, we talk to people about the lived experience of the move from the military into a successful second career. Now, we've spoken to people on all aspects of that transition, both the individual, their partners, organisations that support people going through that transition. And today I'm delighted to welcome onto the podcast Roxanne Brind, who is Veteran Support Services is the coverall um, title, I think, for that. But prior to that, uh, Army Logistics Corps and now a veteran. Roxanne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, now, an interesting connection of how we got to connect in the first place. And my colleague at work, uh, Gareth, was sat on a train and eavesdrop well maybe not eavesdropping but overheard a conversation of you talking to someone else and the subject of kind of veterans and so forth came came up uh, and he connected us and uh, and here we are so I always say that in London apparently you're never more than eight feet away from a rat well I actually think it, the same applies to how far you are away from a veteran so there's there's one a run around every corner so I'm delighted that we've connected um kick us off if you could Roxanne you're you're I suppose let's talk transition into the army in the first place what was the what was the draw was the circumstances you military family what was the no so there's there's no background um I funnily enough did I went to an all-girls school growing up and I did an army experience sort of 24-hour thing with school um and we went to um near sort of Purbright and deep cut in the in some woods around that general area and basically just sort of played lots of sport and just had a really good time and and essentially camped you know there wasn't any um anything too militaryfied to it but yeah sort of slept under the stars in a basher and um I just had a great time and I was like do you know what I can do this um and I really wanted to be a chef that was my goal so I initially joined up um to be a chef after that didn't have my GCSE results when I joined so I was really young um Probably should have gone to Harrogate now in hindsight and done junior leader or junior whatever, you know, the year long sort of thing. Um, but I didn't. I went to Basingbourne, which was kind of like an in-between. So I did 17 weeks instead of 12. Um, and yeah, and then I got my GCSE results and my platoon commander was like, yeah, um, you don't, you, you're not going to be a chef. <laughs> um, and kind of offered me lots of um, job offers and I looked at various things, but I sort of, I don't know, I'd kind of like the scope of the RLC because there was so many places you could go, so many people you could attach to. Um, and I like the idea of, of being free. So I then um, chose Mover to my sins. Well, well, now there's a couple of things in there. One, <laughs> you joined at a very early age. You know, you're very young. She you said, you know, pre-GCSE results. And I suppose straight away you've gone in with a target. You want to be a chef. And quite early you've got that okay, a bit of resilience here because you're not going to have the future that you originally thought. If you kind of look back at it now, how did, I suppose that's the first rejection in some ways, first yeah. first crossroads. How, how do you think you dealt with that at the time when you look back on it now? Uh, I wish I'd had more guidance. I jumped in, you know, I was very passionate about being chef. I still absolutely love to cook. Um, but nobody really sort of gave me any kind of eye-opening ability of what else is out there across the wider military. It was only later in my career when I crossed paths with different services and different trades that it actually highlighted other career aspects I could have had. Um, I was a little bit um, probably closed-minded personally because obviously I was kind of set on a specific. Um, I wanted to travel, so I wanted to be posted abroad and 
And to me, the RLC had the most posting opportunities in that sort of wider world. Um, but I I looked at kind of, I, I did very well in my GCC. So I looked at kind of all, you know, they basically just gave me a list, but I didn't really know or understand them. So actually someone to kind of step in at that point would have been beneficial. And I suppose we're, you know, we're going to talk about that journey out of the military then. And I suppose there's a parallel here, isn't it, between what am I going to do when I leave? And actually, what do I know about the outside world? And and that little bit of guidance, that little bit of someone saying this job actually gives you this opportunity, et cetera. But and I suppose, you know, there's a there's a mirror image at both ends of the career. You know, you're into logistics. Uh, did the career path go as you planned? And what was the where was the point where you got to and went, actually, I'm going to leave? What was the trigger point there or what brought that about? So career-wise was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Um, got posted to Germany literally a couple of weeks after my 17th birthday, got my car license and off I went. Um, I volunteered for absolutely everything. So I you know, was in Poland on exercise a couple of weeks after arriving, um, did most of Europe. And then I was out to Belize for six months doing jungle warfare and doing the transition of the battalion out there, which I loved. Um got promoted um within you know the first couple of years of being in my unit sort of thing so I was 18 year old Lance Jack um and everything was was great you know straight on tour um did back-to-back tours with a sort of a month off in between initially um as soon as I turned 18 so I went out to support TA unit and then obviously my own unit came out um but thrived, really enjoyed being on tour, um, loved immersing myself in in the whole military culture, making friends, you know, spread across the country. It was it was all great. And then I also made the most of the sport that the army has to offer. So I was um, a skier, army lady ski team, um, selected, went to combined service championships. Um, so, I, I, you know, I really, really made the most of it. And I'd got to a point where I wanted to progress in a different way. And I went to do um, a pre-RCB to look at a commission. Um, all went great, came back to my unit and my OC was like, no, we don't need to go. First of all, that whole first couple of years and you said, you know, promoted really quick, but it, it looks like you cut, took every opportunity, but crammed a lot in. Oh, yeah. And I'm oh, I made thinking, the most you know, of it. <laughs> yeah, you've probably normalised that as, oh, well, this is, you know, this is army life. But actually, if you look at that from the outside, that's a fast, steep growing up curve you, you're exposed to situations you're you're in a foreign country very young you know you're driving you such, such. it kind of seems like you've almost fast tracked through growing up no I think it was great grounding um and I think the security of the military supported that you know I think the fact that I lived in a foreign country um with you know sort of other young single soldiers but you know the, the whole pads element plays a part, doesn't it? Because it's the it's the wives of the people that you work with that kind of, I don't know, superimpose themselves as those motherly figures at times if needed. Um, and that's how you kind of create that, that stabilising foundation because it becomes family. It becomes a home. You know, I stayed in Germany. I extended um, and did sort of four and a bit years out there. And I absolutely loved it. And I probably struggled the most with finding where I fit in when I was posted back to the UK. And that's when I was after something else, you know, when nothing seemed to be sort of feeling quite right. Um, I mean, I was away a lot, but I was okay being away from home. I I liked it. Um, And like I said, I volunteered for everything. Can I, every time there was an opportunity that came up, I didn't see it as being dick for something. I saw it as I can go somewhere else, can do something else. Um, So I always kind of kept that, 
my head above water mentality as such you know I'm not seeing anything as kind of a a punishment um you know I could stay in the unit and sort of put up tents that's the classic you know sort of RLC um you know when they've got no time that's what we do we put up tents and take them down again um so I was always looking for that you know sense of adventure I guess um but yeah I mean it was a quick fast-paced period of time and I'd say that probably added to my struggle in my transition because nothing in the civilian world works as fast or moves as fast as the military well yeah that's that's a point that's been echoed on many an occasion when we talk to people uh, their adjustment to learning to be a civvy it's like you kind of have to dial everything down a bit and your expectations are are slightly different there's something you mentioned there which which hasn't come up on a podcast before and it's kind of just triggered a memory for me when you're overseas you talk about then the military wives you know the partners of almost embrace the young single people who are on base and you know you probably get invited around for Sunday dinner and and kind of all those things I kind of don't know if I've seen that outside the wire I don't think society in general does that sort of thing in the workplace in particular you can't imagine someone at your work says oh my mum wants to invite you around for tea because you know you're on your own on the weekend I just I wonder if you've ever looked back on that and gone yeah it's pretty unique yeah, no, not at all. And I think that's why I felt felt so able, because I was so secure. And I had that, that the connections of all of those great relationships and all of those colleagues that weren't just colleagues, they were friends. There's a significant difference in, in civilian work life about whether they're a colleague or they're a friend. Um, and I have to say, you know, in my first unit, I don't think there wasn't anyone in that squadron that I didn't count as a friend. You know, even on on differing levels, there was still always they were always more than a colleague. And I think this whole how do you find your place when you leave and where do you feel you fit? Where's, you know, the culture of the organisation you go into? That's almost becomes even harder, doesn't it? Because you're leaving behind an all embracing culture, you know, as you say, friendships, you know, trust, security, finding the right fit outside is then what else compares to that? That, that that's always going to be a challenge right yeah absolutely and you sort of I for me once I left I really craved those friendships because there was such an understanding of of just everything you know mutually you you understood each other in what you may be struggling with you know because you're all away from home and you're living somewhere different and you know you'd laugh about the language barrier and someone not being particularly good at picking up the German and others flying with it sort of thing um and then when you come out, you you sort of, especially when you move back to the area that you've grown up in and you've not really kept in contact with any of those friends, because I joined so young, I really didn't have a friendship circle when I returned. That's a real, and I know when I've gone back home on leave and I know other people will say the same is the first thing they say is, why are you talking different? Because you left that area and actually you've merged into this kind of uh, military accent and you take that back and they're like oh you're you're a bit different now um you, you talk there about coming back and not feeling you know the adrenaline the kind of fast pace of things have changed back in the UK what what was the kind of you know following years and what point did you think okay now's the time to leave where, where did that come um I think operationally things had slowed down slightly um you know we were then discussing the drawdown of Germany and moving people back um so again that then you had um more people of my job readily available 
you know, because they're all starting to transition back to the UK. So the the Gucci trips as such weren't coming up quite as as often. Um, and I just found being in the UK really hard. It was really sterile. You know, people went home and actually went back to home locations of a weekend um, rather than staying on camp. And I was always used to kind of people being around. Um, and the just the travel aspect, you know, being in the in the middle of Germany, um, I was fortunate enough of a weekend. You could just jump in your car and, you know, you could go north and be on the coast or you could go to a city break or you'd go south and be in the mountains. Um, so it, everything was just more at my sort of fingertips. And I think coming back to the UK and just feeling a little bit unadjusted to, to life in the UK got me thinking, you know, especially when those blockers and those barriers came up. Um, what am I doing? Do I want to be here anymore? Do you know, do I want this? Um, and that raised a lot of questions. And then I think probably I was a little bit stubborn and just kind of went, all right, I'll leave. Uh, and so, yeah, then I did. Did you have a plan? Did you have a plan of what was going to be the next thing? Did you, did you see a role or did you see an organization you wanted to go into? What was the, what was the pr- thought process? What were the priorities for you at that point? I didn't have any. And I think that was the worst thing. I came out with no preparation, no no planning, no job go in sight, no sort of anything. Um, fell into a job through through connections that I had, thankfully, um, and went and worked on um, the Olympic bid um, for a while um, and did sort of utilising my logistical kind of knowledge with, you know, mapping of where people should be and distribution of people and things like that on a, a security side in the quieter part. Um and then again, pushing on with logistics because it's the fallback of, of what you know and, and what I thought people could understand from my CV when you say I've come from logistics. Um, and I went to Brinks, who everyone, I, I say Brinks and people kind of look a bit funny. But if I say Brinks, Mac and the gold robbery, they will go, oh, yeah, OK, then. Uh, so I worked for them. Which generation you're from. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm from a generation that recognises that from the news. I, you know, I, I remember it happening at the time. But it's interesting you say there what people will recognise in what you've done in the military. And and quite often we talk about translating your skills and your experience. Did did you find any kind of barriers to that? Like, you know, the standard thing is, oh, you were in the army, you used to shoot guns. But were, you know, were you finding people who, okay they actually got it or did you take a lot of persuasion say you know I have done this stuff before just called by a different name yeah I had to I felt I had to really um overemphasize my CV like I had to real ads you know layers of context that you wouldn't have to to do in a civilian job um because I felt like I desperately needed to make them understand and when I left um you know being still relatively young um having had you know, a good career, um, I didn't really have have the sort of guidance, you know, because I was quite keen to get out and um, I did find myself a job offer. I didn't get access to to the same kind of CTP and stuff that that, pe- that people are more sort of forced towards now. Um, it was very kind of cut ties and, and sort of push you out the door, fine, on you go then. Um, and so I, I did feel quite on my own in that sense. And I, I wasn't sure how to um, sell myself. Um, and nowadays people talk about transferable skills, um, but that wasn't a, a buzzword when I left. So no one was talking about, you know, time management because I got up and was on parade every morning, um, you know, highlighting that transferable skill sort of thing. Um, it was just, yeah, kind of hours on Google looking to see what might sell or what might kind of put me up there on a CV. And I think once you get the first job and you get that little bit of civilian experience under your belt, I think the next one comes a little bit easier. And so forth, and you know, until you find the right one. 
Yeah, and something that you you mentioned in there in terms of those transferable skills, if you kind of look at the roles that you took on after leaving leaving the army, you know, we, were you able to employ those skills quite easily, or did you did you have to kind of mold and shift? We, I'm, I suppose, can you apply the same things from the military directly into the roles that you had? Were you able to do that quite easily? Yeah, I think so. I think the structure of the military, I think the discipline, the organisation, you know, just those those grounding things that we all pick up. Um, we get frustrated about, you know, why have you got to have inspections and, and do this? And But it's it highlights such an attention for detail. Um, and that's really key in in civilian work and just the determination and, and that that whole resilience of, of just everything, you know, workloads come in, um, especially in the job role I'm in now, and it can feel very overwhelming to people. But straight away, I, I'm sort of um, programmed, if you like, from my time in the military to to create myself a priority and just jump straight on it. And I kind of wonder if, the, you know, we use the term inspections, you know, whether that was, you know, bull night, next morning inspection of the barrack block or inspections at work. But I suppose if you look at the civilian side, those are things of governance. That's the check, the ticks and balances, you know, checks and balances to make sure that things are meeting legislation and, you know, law and all those sorts of things. But like you say, if you're hardwired to expect that, it's not a drama. Yeah, absolutely. And and I my counterparts now struggle with this um, need for more. You know, there's always something that comes out and, well, can we have some more information on that? Or, you know, what else could we do for that? There's always an extension of thought. Um, as I've always had that, the military very much gives you the opportunity of you, you're not just, you know, looking two steps in front of you. You know, it's five and twenties and then it's looking at, at the, the outer kind of what you can see it's you know it's 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 checking your arcs isn't it it's it's all that extended area in front of you so it's not just about that what's right in front of your face which a lot of um civilians who've never experienced anything that's um challenged them significantly often struggle with because they only look what's what's right in front when you look back now on your decision to leave in particular and i know you said you know unprepared etc if you kind of had to draw up a list of right, what's the first thing I should do? What's the most important thing? And actually, what are the things that really I don't need to spend time on? Would you kind of have a different list? You know, would you have prioritised things in a certain way, knowing what you know now compared to what you actually did at the time? And and what would that list look like? What would be the top of your list as a a kind of, I'm getting out, the first thing I need to do is this? What what would your list look like? Yeah, so employment, yeah, definitely would would have been up there because obviously I kind of just went, I'll find something. Of course I will. Like I'm great. You know, I can I can do it. Um, housing. Um, I wasn't sure how the the sort of move of you know moving back in with people for the time being or being on your own. Obviously, I was very used to being on my own, so moving back in with my parents as a stopgap um, was not ideal because <laughs> you've not having never lived with them since I was fifteen. Um, that was a uh, a learning experience all to itself. Um, but then silly things like registering with a GP and a dentist sounds bizarre. But actually, once you have lived somewhere for kind of six, eight months and then you've moved or something else, um, you know, they want background and they want history and they want, well, what was your last doctor's or what was your last dentist? And oh, I haven't I haven't registered one. Well, you're at the bottom of the list. You know, some of these people wait years to get on some of these you know, waiting list to get into the right GP surgery. So I think it was it would be establishing um, a, a base, a setup. You know, it's it's geographically working out where you're going to be, and trying to make sure that you 
start putting those roots out early because I very much had come to the conclusion I think that I wanted to put some roots down um but I didn't really know where and funnily enough I didn't settle anywhere for quite some time um and it was on having my children that made me go right you know what we just need to stay put in one place now well um what was behind that you know not not settling in one place because as you said there you know you're a sort out you, you don't sort your dentist out until you get your first toothache right when you leave so um that, that's always the the driver but what was behind the the unsettled period if you like or why you didn't feel like that's the place you wanted to stay um i don't do you know what i can't honestly put my finger on it i think part of the always moving around and always seeking that next kind of challenge probably led me to feel um that uh, maybe I hadn't quite reached it you know there was there was still something more that I was looking for and I think not finding the right job that I felt totally happy and comfortable in or um you know maybe not having the friendship circle um and so that just led to me feeling like well I can just get up and move somewhere else because I'm okay doing that as I think a lot of people you know civilian counterparts feel stuck they don't feel the ability to just move somewhere new and start again um and I probably had four big moves before I I settled where I am now and I've been here nearly six years now so um yeah and this is probably the longest I've been in one place (laughs) that's interesting you say about circle of friends and I suppose you've gone back to your time in Germany there's a network there's a trust Mm -hmm. circle of trust and and now you're in a civilian environment which you didn't grow up in you don't have a circle of friends yes it makes it easier to move because you're not breaking ties but then you mentioned you know children come along and of course they're settled in a school they've got friendship groups you know you may at that point go I'd like to move but I don't want to move the kids again it wasn't until my eldest started school that I actually stayed put Um, because you then take other people into consideration on that as previously it it had been very easy for me because it was on me Um, but once you start worrying about somebody else and obviously being on my own with my children um, you know there's a lot more to to take into consideration to that factor so it was once he started school that we obviously stayed put and then I did build my own friendship circle because you know I made those connections through school and things so it was much much easier but I felt once I'd made those friends that I realized why I struggled because with these friends I've made now there was a common interest there was a you know circumstances of being put together and sort of making the best of that time as previously I've struggled with what I had in common with people I struggled with you know having a multiple friendship circle rather than it just being one friend um and so It was interesting when I made these friends now, and I'd say absolutely over the last six years, they're lifelong friends, but how circumstances put me with them as previously I'd sort of struggled. Yeah, and we've spoken to, you know, several uh, partners who've followed their, you know, their their husband around and their military wife. And one of the things that they say is that there's a danger that you lose your own identity because you sacrifice the things that you used to do to kind of follow and to keep the home together and what have you. So that was one side of it. The flip side sometimes is that the the children in the family almost get used to moving. You know, when they yeah. post in, they move schools, etc. And actually, that builds a certain degree of adaptability and resilience for them further down the line. But of course, at the time, it feels unsettling. It's it's difficult. It's a challenge to kind of settle them into into a school. If you kind of look at it now, you're six years in one place. Do do you think that the 
the benefit of staying put outweighs the let's constantly move the children around for a military family in particular? Yeah. And I think for me, what was really significant is I'd got to that point where actually that impacted my decision on leaving. I didn't want to constantly be away when having kids and I didn't want to um, necessarily be constantly moving them, Um, you know, and I'd seen lots of friends do it and I'd seen their kids cope with it perfectly, you know, amazingly. And I could I could cope, totally see and understand the benefits. But actually, when it came to me making that decision, it felt like it was easier for me to be stubborn and walk away um, than it was to kind of commit to that life as such. Um, I think the whole part of growing up and, you know, then becoming a wife and then becoming a mum changed me and the my need for adventure. You know, now I'm all about the quiet life. <laughs> so, you know, the sense of adventure is is a fancy holiday. <laughs> well, I was just about to say, when you have children, the quiet life kind of goes out the window. You, cra- <laughs> you crave that moment when they've gone to school, close the door and you can grab a brew by yourself. But, you know, not always possible. Um, you, you've talked now about, you know, life after the service and, and making decisions based on other people uh, that you're around there. What's the biggest lesson in terms of learning to be a civvy? Because I suppose that, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? You, you The expectations, the pace of things, et cetera. What would you think are the, the biggest changes in you that you've, you've gone through in, in this time? I felt completely um, overwhelmed by um, people's competencies, I think. I think I read job descriptions thinking, wow, I, I can't do all of that. Um and then I've come into the civilian world and, and pinged around from from various jobs and worked for myself and and done a multitude of things. And now I'm in a you know substantially large organisation in in those support services, and I massively underestimated my capability. You know, I'm taking on much much bigger things than some of those job descriptions that I read, and not even thinking twice about it. And I think I undervalued and undersold my experience. Um, to people when I was applying for things because I don't think I realised just how sort of adaptable and, um, you know, soldiers really are chameleons. You really can put yourself into any situation and make yourself fit, you know. It may be a little bit, you know, round hole, square peg and it's not comfortable, but you will get in there and and you will make it work. Um, And then eventually, you know, those surroundings will just naturally fit. And I think some of the things we take for granted, like, you know, OK, the obvious things that civvies will look at and go, OK, an ex-military person will turn up on time, well presented. OK, we need to see past that. There's more to us than that. But I sometimes wonder whether the service lever and the veteran, the start point for this whole transition is recognising what you are capable of or what you've done and 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 being able to talk about that because in the military no one likes a tall poppy right so we're not good at telling people how good we are at something i want i wonder if that's in your support service role now do you see that as a challenge for service leavers and actually standing up and be able to say yeah i'm, I'm really good at this absolutely and recognizing you know just some of those daily tasks and how impactful and influential those those simple tasks can be. You know, a lot of them have always just followed instruction, but they don't realise quite how detailed the action that they've been asked to complete is, and and you know how much that is is changing and and influencing other people, and how you know the simple instruction might be, um, you know, go out and and do this recce patrol. You know, and there's there's nothing expected to kick off, and you just follow the route. But what they don't realise is 
everything that comes into doing that and all of those small little things that that the soldier just forgets that they're doing because they're natural habit um and that's one of the biggest things it's when I'm talking to people now and saying you know because I'm I'm mainly kind of dealing with people when they've hit rock bottom or there's a real significant struggle um and it's saying well you know you you've come you've overcome worse things than this you know especially anyone who's been on an operational tour they've been around someone who's lost someone that they knew or they've lost somebody um and they managed to remain on tour you know and they completed that what they needed to do um and so the significance is is trying to show them that you know although this feels overwhelming and over consuming at the moment you're made of tougher stuff and and you will get past this and i know that civilian society doesn't pick you up and spur you on in the same way um but that doesn't mean that you know there aren't people like me out there that will advocate for you and will champion you you know into making things better yeah, and I, maybe there's a perception, and I suppose, you know, this is the difference between what you've just described there in the military. You know, you lose someone on tour, you still got, you know, you still continue, you can still function as a as a soldier and, and complete the task versus what would happen if you're working in a civilian organization and you lost someone close to you and it's actually, okay, you're, you're not coming into work for the next month or three months. And it almost seems like a completely different approach but actually you kind of say, well, which is better for the individual? Yeah. And I think not, I think recognizing our own emotions of how we deal stuff, we're very good at masking, um, you know, so remaining on tour might be utterly heartbreaking and and shattering you piece by piece inside. Um, we're not very good at vocalizing that. I don't think personally, you know, friends that I had lost, I'd, I'd lost a, a roommate and a, and a boyfriend. And um, I wasn't very good at talking about how it affected me. Um you know, I very much was like, I, I'm just going to carry on. I'm just going to crack on. I've got a job to do. And, you know, you come home and drank far too much on, you know, leave and stuff afterwards and then throw yourself into something else. And I think it's recognising that it, it's okay to say, you know, it's, it's big at the moment, isn't it, with mental health. It's okay. It's not to be okay. But it's it's recognising and just saying, I might need a little bit of time. Or actually, for me, I would like to come into work and have a distraction. But... I might just need a little bit more compassion. You know, reasonable adjustments is is the sort of big thing in the civilian world at the moment. And actually, a lot of employers are more than happy to put in those adjustments because they want to keep good staff, but staff are fearful to ask for them. So one of my... Yeah, and I think... Yeah, sorry. I think if you've come from the military background, that fear of asking, you don't want to appear to be weak. You don't want to miss out on going on tour or you don't want something is probably the blocker. Whereas what you're saying, what you're describing there is the employer wants to keep talent. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Make those adjustments. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting one for, for service leavers to be aware of what employers, what, what they will do in terms of their, their support, probably an important choice of what organization you go to work for as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think for me, when I'm encouraging people to apply for jobs and they read the job description and say, well, I can't do that. You know, I have an example of of someone I worked with yesterday who the the, um, job was in a sorting office for the Royal Mail over Christmas. Really good money because lots of nights and unsociable hours. But he was happy with that. But he struggles with his back. Um, Now, it says on there, you know, must be able to stand for long periods of time you know, need basically trying to highlight to the individual applying for the job that it's going to be quite a physically demanding job. 
Um, but I encouraged my veteran to apply and and said, you know, specify that, that you have a back condition, you're willing to do the job, but your reasonable adjustment will be that you may need a chair. And And he was very shocked that he could even still apply. And I was like, Absolutely, because all you're asking for is a chair. Yes, they've specified that. But if you took the job and they hadn't specified that and then you were like, oh, don't want to be on my feet all day, then they've done something wrong in in the application. So by saying this, they're giving you expectations. They're they're preempting what you can expect. Um, But all you're doing is saying, I'm willing to do it, but I may need this to help me. Yeah, the interesting one for me there is almost that what is expected, what's, you know, when someone says a long day on your feet, like to me as a veteran, I go, well, that's probably about 12 hours, 15 hours. <laughs> and I go, that's my that's my yardstick. But to a civilian, long time on their feet might be three hours. And actually, I can do that with my bad back anyway. So I, yeah. I kind of that adjustment, the expectations, you know, probably a, a critical thing. Um, so Roxanne, you're in kind of veteran support services and uh, and that whole wraparound side of things. If there was a groundhog day that you keep seeing the conversations or situations that keep arising that you think, do you know what, for all the CTP supports, for all the things that are out there, we still seem to come up with the same challenge. What what would that be in your experience? The realisation that their service has impacted their mental health. So it's okay to say I'm coping, I'm coping, I'm coping, I'm coping, or I like a drink or I'm sociable. There's all words that we can mask up with. And it doesn't mean that you have an addiction by any means, but we've all got our ways of coping. Um, but then all of a sudden, when that that hurdle comes up and the coping wall crumbles, what happens? And that that asking for help, that pride, that barrier, that it's it's not an admission of being weak. It's not anything else. It's just saying, actually, do you know what? I can't do this by myself. And the way I often describe it to the people that I work with is your whole career, you've been a team. You've been a section. You've been a platoon. You've been a battalion. You've been whatever. You've never been an individual. You've always been within a team. So now why facing these challenges do you think you have to be an individual? You know, utilise the fact that you've been a team this whole time. There's always someone that will be on your side, whether it's an oppo, whether it's someone you've worked with previously, whether it's an NHS worker, whether it's someone in my position offering support. There's always someone else that will fight for you, advocate for you, champion you, whatever you need at the time. But you never should feel like you have to do it by yourself because you never did while you're in the military. Yeah, and I think that's the, you know, we talk about the network and we talk about support. Sometimes you get some support from your friends you keep in touch with, but there is a, there's often an element when people leave the service and, and not always in great circumstances, you know, it might be medically discharged when they really didn't see it coming or they got frustrated, didn't get promoted and they bang their papers in and they go. It is sometimes a case where they disconnect from that military community you know that support mechanism the associations the the friendship groups that they had and it takes some time to reconnect and i i kind of wonder in your experience and now supporting veterans whether you see that as almost a significant milestone in making that successful transition is being able to stay connected not reliant necessarily but willing to discuss their previous you know service and things like that I wonder if that ever comes up I think connections are really tough one I would say 
yes, always try and keep the connections. When I left being female um, and a lot of my friends and counterparts all suddenly starting to get married or leaving themselves, civilian wives didn't understand the relationships that I had with their husbands. Um, you know, I wasn't there trying to pinch him, but we had been through quite a lot together and we just had a, a, a very good friendship. So I did lose a lot of those connections. And of course, I'm a southerner and most of my friends were northern. So, you know, the the sort of geographical gap between us um, led to, you know, not seeing each other in, as much and things. And I think I think connection is important. What I would say to people is um, get out there and find your local veterans hub find your breakfast club you don't always have to go to the pub at nine o'clock on Saturday morning you know there are drop-ins and things at other times um find it pop along you don't always have to talk work stuff or you know previous history of of anything but ultimately anyone who's been a veteran has an understanding and and just has a silent kind of I've got you you know I get it so when you're having a bad day and you want to reach out to someone and just say you know this day particularly is difficult for me because I remember such and such and this incident happened or things like that. There's no judgment or sort of, um, you know, pressure to kind of make you elaborate on that topic. Um, they have just an understanding. And also, I think the generations that you meet when you go. Um, obviously, I attend a lot of, of veterans hubs and breakfast clubs now in, in my job. And I'm always there as like a double edged sword sort of thing because I come under being a veteran. Um, but it's just nice to talk about people and the differences, you know, talking to people about how, what the Falklands was like and being able to parallel that to my time in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, some of them I go to and actually they're much, much older veterans. Um, and, you know, we, we've got a couple that are, um, you know, just struck the hundred mark sort of thing. So they have different wartime experience and different service experience. Um, and they often laugh and say, oh, I've wanted to be a soldier now. <laughs> And you think, I feel like you had it worse. <laughs> well, I'm kind of uh, of a generation that when we joined, we still had bed packs. And then I know of people who did my role a couple of years later and they were allowed to have duvets in basic training. So <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, whoa, you know, that's I'm not sure that's quite such a good thing. Uh, but on a serious note, you know, you've mentioned there about talking to other veterans. There is a community. There's a, a, a trusting circle of people there straight away whether you were in the same cap badge same color uniform veteran to veteran there's a there's a trust straight away but if you were to look back now you know having served you know having now supported veterans if i said to you you know roxanne what does it mean to be a veteran to you oh that's a difficult one i would say when i first left i didn't feel like a veteran i didn't acknowledge or identify myself as being a veteran um and I probably didn't realise quite what my military service gave me. So it probably took quite a few years for that to actually sink in. And then it was when those big bumps in the road came in my life. Um, and, you know, the the sort of marriage breakdown and the having children and being a single mum, how I'd seen civilian friends deal with that and how they felt completely just utterly broken and, and couldn't function and they were so on their own that, that resilience in me and that determination to just be like, no, I'm, you know, this doesn't change me. This is me. This is just something that's happened. Um, then probably started to resonate in me that actually the military had taught me that. Um, and so it gave me a sense of pride. Um, it definitely gives me a sense of, of family and community, you know, reconnecting with those veterans. Like you said, it's that trust. It's that, you know, there's just an initial, I understand we have something that we share. Um 
And so, yeah, definitely. And then I think things like watching the Queen's, you know, funeral and all of those military people involved, it does give me that that overwhelming pride, you know, and it and it gave me a sense of I wish I was still part of that at the same time because I felt so bonded with with everybody there and I felt so proud of them and I felt so proud of me and you know just the unity of of a country and that really resonated with me that actually being a veteran is something special yeah and I uh, you've highlighted there about the Queen's funeral which we've obviously just recently had and I think every veteran watching that was kind of like oh I wish I was back doing that now but also yeah they were watching the parade probably differently than civvies would go and I actually know who was in that, that unit or they, you know, I was on a tour with them and, and there's all those kind of things. But and every you know, foot that was out of place, every TikTok, every <laughs> every bit of marching that wasn't perfect, all of us were eyes on. He's not doing it right. But there is also a thing, isn't there, when you when you see that, the pride that you have that you were part, a small part of a massive machine that will go on long after we've gone. But I think, you know, as you said, I'm always interested in how we perceive ourselves as veterans. And some people we've had on this podcast don't like the word. You know, they see themselves military, ex-army. They never use the word veteran. But now, and, and, you know, from a public's point of view, I'm interested to see how we see ourselves but also yeah. how we think the public see us, you know, and I think said, you know, veteran, what they, what they think. Veteran is, um, I often start um, PowerPoint presentations with a picture of, of World War II soldiers and say, when I say veterans, is this what you see? And lots of people are, are nodding and yes, yes. And, you know, I always joke because men's veteran football teams are over 35 you know, and, and <laughs> I'm not male or over 35, but you know, they, they call, those veterans um so I think it, it definitely differs that the meaning between people um and a lot of people that I speak to I say veteran because veteran is what's recognized um in 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 my line of work um and in kind of support structures so you know the NHS and and things like that if you say um ex-forces or ex-army they don't always necessarily understand that that means that you know it's veteran related sort of thing as actually if you say oh this is a veteran they straight away know that you tick this box and that goes where and this is who you pass to sort of thing um so I think I'm trying to encourage people to use the word veteran more because it is what's recognized in terms of of aiding support yeah and I think we should take ownership over that and we shape what that perception should be of of a veteran as you say we're a modern day veteran you know there's a lot of people leave the service who didn't go to an operational tour who didn't come out with PTSD, who didn't get injured in service, but they're still a veteran. And I think you know, actually they're almost for- forgotten about. There's one point I would just want to add on to that because we had Lisa Rawlins on this uh, podcast some time ago, and she almost said there's almost an additional barrier that we have to overcome, which is female veteran. And when she's in a room, and similar to yourself in support services, and she's talking about veterans, they forget that, she is a veteran as well. On Remembrance Day, when she's got medals on, they were asking her, whose medals are they? Yeah. Actually, yeah, they're mine. I'm a veteran. And I, I wonder if you, you've come across that as well, whether that is an, almost an additional kind of thing to overcome. Definitely. And part of when Gareth was overhearing my conversation was was me having a mini rant about that, to be honest, because, you know, I was it was in, you know, on our way back from Remembrance up in um, at the Cenotaph. And and I'd been to to my work line um, headquarters for a service and, you know, had been in and I was in this room full of people and there was, you know, two veterans in the room, one male, 
and myself and he had no medals and no anything and they were flocking around him like he was god and uh you know and I had both of my medals on and, and was a bit and I did get asked oh were they your husbands and I you know yeah <laughs> had to channel my inner civvy not to react <laughs> I love that totally in the city but uh, uh you know real and I think you know by raising awareness of things that people do after they leave service and drawing the connection back to they served they're a veteran they're a female veteran I think you know we may be part of this you know, changing this uh, this perception is actually down to the veteran community themselves to 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 actually flag you know the positives and the things yeah that definitely doing. and I think if anything if people can just um talk about it more I think it's it's the ability to open and to to raise that communication um, because I think it's it's really key that people just just talk about their service. You know, it doesn't have to be all the bad side of things. You know, I often say to my kids when I take them on holidays, you know, like I used to ski when I was in the army and, you know, the adrenaline of racing and, you know, all of the positive things, you know, Army Navy, all the civvies want to go to Army Navy. You know, it's that little glimpse, isn't it, of what else the military has to offer. Um and so I think it's really important that that we don't just talk about the PTSD and the sadness of our time while we served, but talk about all of the great things the military had to offer. And people often say to me, oh, how would you feel about your sons joining the army? And I'd go, I'd be absolutely for it because I don't regret any point of my military career. Yes, I chose to leave, but I don't have a bad thing to say about it. Even in all of my bad days and my bad experiences, I still have no negative thought against my time serving. Uh, Roxanne Brint, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the Naffy Break podcast and sharing those experiences in your journey through and, and obviously now working with veterans and, and supporting veterans. Um, but thank you so much for coming on to the Naffy Break podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.